0: Dan Boyce is a college librarian at Divine Word College in Epworth, Iowa. He is the author of the Mitchell Kennerly imprint bibliography, put out, now is that Pittsburgh series in bibliography, Pittsburgh uh, University of Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm, yes, published in 1996, Welcome to The Bibliophile. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, Mitchell Kennerly was just a fascinating individual, and as I understand it, served as a very important bridge between British and American publishing.
1: I think that's accurate. Brought many British authors to America that hadn't been here before. D.H. Lawrence, H.G. Wells, some lesser knowns perhaps, Victoria Cross, and Oscar Wilde. I can't forget
0: him. He first came to the uh, United States courtesy of John Lane as that company's representative, is that right? That's correct. He was a young
1: clerk for for Lane, and uh, as Bruckley notes, Lane must have uh, seen something he liked, because he sent him over to check on things in the New York office, and and from there, Kennerly never looked back. What year was that? I'm thinking about 1904, because he launched his own publishing
0: career in 1906. And Lane actually he came over to the United States to check up on Kennerly and, and didn't like what he saw, according to Broccoli. So it wasn't a happy parting of ways. No, but
1: Kennerly um, didn't let those kind of things stand in his, his way. He never looked back. He had plenty of other connections with British publishers. Um, he set up all sorts of... Uh, well, he, he met... American writers.
0: Sounds like he was a great social networker.
1: I think that's probably one of his best, at least for being a publisher, best attributes. He got to know a lot of the writers, made friends with them, got to know who they were friends with, and got introduced to young writers who he was able to bring along. But yeah, he he established many, many connections throughout the the English publishing world and then the American publishing world that uh, served him well, mostly. He established a reputation early on as somebody who published young writers, but then wasn't so good at paying them full fuller contracts, uh, maybe not so good at paying other publishers when he bought their plates. Um,
0: yeah, he worked with Grant Richards. Worked very Richard. closely with
1: Grant Richards for, for in many, many volumes. Um, published a lot of his stuff, often under uh, the same imprint. And I, I was able to read some of the correspondence between those two guys, and they had a real mutual respect for each other until eventually Kennerly got so far behind in his payments that Richard's had to pretty much stop dealing with him, although I think he did that with regret. I think he, he liked Kennerly a lot, but just couldn't turn a profit with Kennerly's uh, business practices.
0: Why do you think Kennerly was so... stupid isn't the right word. Oh, no, no, no. And uh, Devious may not be the right... what do you no. think the right word is to describe this fact that although he was very had a lot of social acumen and mm-hmm. and, and uh, just didn't do the obvious which is pay his bills i don't
1: think he had a lot of business sense i think he he was more interested in publishing literature that he liked and just assumed that if he liked it everyone would like it and they would sell and when the money didn't come in He thought, well, it must be just around the corner. The next book will turn me the profit, and and the next. But
0: the thing is, though, even when he did make profit, was he using that profit to pay off previous bills?
1: No, he he had a pretty nice lifestyle. He married a, a woman who had some money of her own, but I think he liked living well, and he justified it as how a publisher should live.
0: In a way, he was doing these authors' A favor by getting their work in print, and so what? He, as a result, he didn't feel any obligation to pay his bills.
1: I think that's probably pretty fair. I don't think he ever intentionally meant to short any of them.
0: You mean and, you think he he intended to eventually to pay them? Oh
1: yes. Oh absolutely. And and he was known for being generous to his friends. Um, there are records of many loans he gave to uh, up and coming writers many of whom didn't come up. I mean, they just mm. fizzled out. But he, he made lots of, of loans that never got repaid. But I think he just kept waiting for that pot full of money to arrive, and it, it never arrived.
0: You think he may have been overestimating uh, American taste for good literature? Right. Well,
1: we all know that H.L. Mencken... Said that uh, no one ever went broke underestimating the American taste. I think that's a big part of it. He really honestly believed that these poets and these novelists, whom he enjoyed, would naturally sell. And so he didn't put a lot of effort into sales. Like, uh, Bruckley says he had two people doing sales. Being from England, he may not have grasped the, the enormity of, of America. You know, in England, I guess. People could probably cover the country
0: well, and also they. I think publishers had this ethos that if they put something that was really good out, mm-hmm. then readers would naturally come to it. And maybe that was the case in England, but certainly not in the states. You really did have to promote it.
1: And Kennerly never did. He just never put that kind of emphasis on sales. It was a source of some friction between him and one of his um, assistants. Uh, Alfred R. Knopf. There was a famous censorship trial in uh, 1914, I believe. A book published by Kennerly, very obscure book, not especially well written, but um,
0: but lesbian, wasn't it? Or am I jumping the? I I, right?
1: I don't I don't know for sure. Okay. Hagar uh, Revali by Daniel Carson Goodman, but it got um, confiscated by the Comstock group, and Kennerly was arrested and put on trial, and I think most publishers at that point would have given up, uh, figured it wasn't worth the trouble, just an expensive court case. But Kennerly fought the censorship charge. It was a very dramatic trial, and to a lot of people's great surprise, he won. He was successful. The judge said the book was not obscene, and at that point, Knopf urged Kennerly, said, you know, let's, let's make this book, let's print it a few more thousand copies, let's, you know, make it a big deal, let's, let's really go to town on it. And Kennerly wasn't interested, he was looking ahead to other publishing projects. So Knopf was frustrated with that, and so he set off on his own, determined to do things differently than Kennerly, and, and uh, of course we know that Knopf is still a very viable business firm, so he must have learned some good lessons.
0: And I think famously he said he learned what not to do. Okay, right. And I think there may have been some friction between the two because Kennerly thought that Knopf may have been poaching some of his authors and publishing on his own on the side or some such. That was when Knopf was thinking about moving out. He was
1: then starting to pay very close attention to some of Kennerly's authors, right, and taking them out to lunch. And
0: yeah, so it wasn't a very happy parting of the ways. So the firm then is successful to some extent? Kennerly stayed
1: afloat. It, it's, it's not clear to me how much of that was because of the books and how much of that was because of his wife's fortune. He did have a number of books that sold well. Some popular authors, and he, had to, he did multiple printings of, of some of his titles. So perhaps he did sell enough to just pay off the rent and um, keep some of the writers happy. But he did not get rich through his publishing house. That's, that's a fact. And nor did any of his, his
0: authors. To be fair to Kennerly, he launched quite a few careers and many of the authors, I think, were grateful for that. That's exactly true.
1: He launched many, many uh, young writers. Uh, the most famous, of course, being uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, but there were any number of other young writers, Upton Sinclair, Um, who probably wouldn't have seen the light of day but for Kennerly. So Kennerly would publish their first book. Sometimes it would sell and sometimes it wouldn't, and he was still very good about it, and he would publish a second book of theirs. And at some point about the time they were ready to write their third book, they realized they weren't getting any money and another publisher would come along and offer them guaranteed funds, and so they'd, they'd move on to another publisher. But you're right, they all uh, spoke very warmly of Kennerly giving them the chance to really uh, get into print, see a broad audience, and, and establish a name for themselves. And, and that's probably the, the thing that Kennerly is remembered most for, the number of young writers whom, whom he launched in, in a great part of American literary history.
0: And the books themselves are quite uh, lovely.
1: They are. They are well put together. Kennerly had a good sense of how a book should look, quality printing. Typeface was always clean. The, the covers were, were put on well. So his books were nice objects in and of themselves. And um, then at, at, he was became friends with Frederick Gowdy, the famous typeface uh, creator, who designed a typeface for... Uh, one of Kennerly's books, H.G. Uh, Wells' book, although there's some some doubt about whether that was actually the very first time it was used in print, but "The Window in the Wall" by Wells used a typeface now known as Kennerly typeface.
0: Very... The New York Times used it for decades. Is that right? I did not know mm-hmm. that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this was a very very nice typeface, and Kennerly used it in in many of his books. So that was that was a special think that he left the publishing world. But yeah, his, his books were, and, and still are, very, very nice. Some of his... Uh, collections of photographs and etchings are, are very lovely things, and they're held in rare book rooms and treated with great respect. So he did well on mm-hmm. the book as, as
0: object. What then were the dates we're looking at for the uh, firm? Kennerly's first published books were in 1906. What was the first one do you the First
1: one. Well, there was uh, the journal. He, he published a magazine. He for a published while, a yeah? couple of magazines. The first book was Modern Love. A collection of poetry.
0: Anthology. Right?
1: Anthology of, of the subtitle says, All Thoughts, All Passions, All Delights.
0: And that was 1906?
1: 1906. 1906. I'm not sure the exact date. There are copies with inscriptions from, well, they were advertised in the May 1906 Publishers Weekly. And in 1906, uh, then he got started with a, a number of novels. But Modern Love was the first book with the Kennerly imprint. And he stayed busy into the late 19 teens and eventually kind of got tired of it. As World War One wound down, his, his publishing work kind of petered out. And his last book was published in 1938. Um, at that time, he was publishing just one or sometimes no books. And fact from 1929 until 1937 he didn't publish any books at all. He had by 1920 become involved with the world of art and the Anderson Galleries uh, that sold art in New York City. And he took over that. In that would have been, what, the early 20s? Right, around 1920. He pretty much gave up publishing at that point.
0: And w- when he was with Anderson, he uh, put together some very famous uh, book auctions, didn't he?
1: He did. He knew that Anderson Galleries couldn't compete as the premier art, paintings, and sculpture auction house, so Kennerly focused on books and Again, because he had built such a fine network of writers and then collectors, he was in a perfect position to discover collections of books that were coming up for market and auction them off. And a couple things happened. One, at that point, book collecting was not regarded quite so seriously as it would be later on. And so it wasn't a very promising it could have gone either way, but Kennerly pursued it with a great deal of energy and turned out some amazing book sales uh, to some very famous collectors. Huntington, yeah. The Huntington Library is one of the premier beneficiaries of, of the Anderson Gallery's sales, so was, most of that collection, I think, was bought at Anderson. The Folger Library was largely built from Anderson sales also. And Kennerly, using his expertise in the world of books, produced some amazing catalogs for the sales. Instead of just simple lists of books and dates and authors, he and his staff did some descriptive work that was, I think, unique and still valued to this day. Bibliographers still rely, or look, and use the catalogs from the Anderson Gallery. So it was some impressive energy on Kennerly's part, some skills that really got Anderson to the top of the book-selling world.
0: Yeah, in fact, dislodging, or maybe not dislodging, but competing with London as the center for uh, the, the auction of books. Right. Putting it on the map.
1: Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, and Kennerly did that, and the Anderson Galleries put New York at the center of the, the book trade. And you know, Kennerly, being English, must have had some uh, mixed feelings about that, but he went at it uh, wholeheartedly, there's no question. Although the same lack of business skills that kept him in trouble printing haunted him through this Anderson Galleries years also. He kept borrowing in order to pay, and he'd borrow in order to pay off the, the lenders. and I think if Bernie Madoff had been around, then he would have been a sucker for that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I think that that's one of the tragedies of his life, too. Uh, He was a womanizer, for for one thing. Yes, yes. I don't know if he was an alcoholic as well. I don't think so. I don't think so. I
1: I have no reason to think that at all.
0: So mostly it was women and a desire for a, a lifestyle that was beyond his means. Yeah,
1: I think that gets it. I think he did like to live well. He liked to treat his friends well. He did like to hang around with important writers and people in the book world and felt, especially when he was head of the gallery, that you know he must be seen
0: to be um, living well. Just to build an aura of right. uh, success around the...
1: Uh, ended up dying and... Nineteen fifty, while by his own hand, living in a kind of a seedy hotel, and uh, had been borrowing from his friends for years and years. Uh, so a very sad, sad ending.
0: He tried setting up his own bookstore, didn't he? He
1: he did run a used bookshop brief for for a number of years um, in Manhattan, and I think he, he got tired of it was a lot of work. I mean, yeah. as, as you know, it's uh, requires a great deal of dedication, and I think Kennerly liked being out and about instead of being in a bookstore, so Mm -hmm. eventually had to sell that.
0: So if we were to, we've always touched on perhaps some of the reasons for Mm -hmm. his, well, unfortunate, tragic end. Is there anything else that, that strikes you about his character, his personality, that may explain how his life went?
1: I think he was indomitable to the extent that he was absolutely unrealistic in the kind of challenges he was facing. He just never believed he could really be badly off. I don't think he gambled, but I think he loved challenges, and the, the more unlikely the chance of success some, in some ways, the more intensely he pursued it. You know, it's it's great that he published all those young authors, and he published a great deal of poetry, and that's wonderful, but if he was interested in the bottom line, that was not a way to really um make any kind of profit so that, that would help him publish other books, you know, same young authors. My goodness, he was what a champion of, of mm-hmm. these unknowns, whom he really believed in. But again he never got enough of the well known writers or or didn't hang on to them. didn't hang on to them, didn't yeah. make the effort to hang on to them. I think he had he really focused on hanging on to those Malays, those, you know, Van Wick Brooks, Upton Sinclair's He could have really made some nice profits. But I think he got bored quickly with projects. And he was always looking ahead. What's the next thing I can do? What's the next journal I can launch? And an inability to stay focused probably explains a lot of what happened. You know, the Anderson Galleries, too, he excited about it. He did a lot of good work and then I think he got tired of it and opened up a bookshop and again had more fun opening it up than he did actually with the day-to-day work. So, loved a challenge, just didn't
0: have the... He wanted gratification quickly and... He
1: wanted to beat the odds and show people that he could do this. He could take these young authors, he could make
0: them something and he did. And yet it's sad how how little known he is outside of the, the book world.
1: It really is. He was a fascinating character and did a great deal for American literary history. But as you say, it's, it's only the very knowledgeable book dealers who know about his imprint, the collectors who know about 20th century American publishing, who've heard of him. People who are familiar with you know, some of the other publishers will have heard his name. Oh, sure, Kennerly. Wasn't he the one who started Knopf? Wasn't he the one that so-and-so was involved in? But among well, well-read people... He's, he's not a, a... No one knows him at all, and that is a shame. He got a very small obituary in the New York Times when he was killed. And as and, and you say, it's a shame, because he, he deserves to be known, if only, for this flamboyant character.
0: Was it that that attracted you to to him? What, attra- what was it?
1: Oh, it, it was a little bit more pedestrian than that. I was a... a the library staff at the University of South Carolina and worked very closely with Matthew J. Bruckley when he was writing his wonderful biography of Kennerly.
0: Yeah, The Fortunes of Mitchell Kennerly, published by Harcourt Brace uh, Jovanovich. It's a a
1: wonderful book, and um, Dr. Bruckley, I was working in the interlibrary loan office at the time, would come in and order, you know, huge numbers of books of, of Kennerly or about Kennerly and articles. And he was very generous in talking about his scholarship. And at some point as the book was going to press, he asked me if I would be interested in doing a bibliography of Kennerly based on his own collection, which was several hundred volumes, and the research he had done. And he very graciously let me use his books, really gave me an introductory course in descriptive bibliography. When I went up to New York, he gave me lots of advice, had me stay at the Princeton Club, and knew who I should be talking to, and so it was just a, a wonderful opportunity for
0: me. The Mitchell Kennerly Imprints bibliography that, that you compiled was published in 1996, is that right? That's correct. Perhaps then we could just focus on the books a bit. Okay. From the perspective of a collector, you must have handled most of the books.
1: I did, almost all.
0: So, which ones felt the best?
1: Well, I guess one would have to say that uh, the H.G. The Wells book, you know, with th- that wonderful Kennerly imprint, was just the most fun to hold and you see that printing. The lettering, Gaudi's typeface. Kennerly did a number of photographic books that were, were very lovely to look at, also. They can't have been inexpensive to produce some of them.
0: Do they have some titles for those?
1: Um, not, not offhand. I, I think he did some for Alfred Steiglitz. Uh, I know they were friends. Stiglitz advised him on some, I guess not, um, I'm sorry. It was, it yeah, was a long okay. time ago. No, it's uh, no problem. Oh, oh, one of the most fun books was uh, this one called *Spectra: New Poems* by uh, allegedly by Emanuel Morgan and Knish, mm-hmm. published in 1917. It really was written by Witter Binner and Arthur Davidson Thicke, and they were poking fun of literary criticism, and so they invented their own school of criticism called. Uh, the spectra criticism, and so these two very fine poets wrote these poems in, in this new style, and Kennerly, whom everyone assumes was in on the joke, published it and got some wonderful Reviews from the critics who fell all over themselves, saying what a brilliant new school of thought this is. And um, I think a lot of people were very unhappy to learn it was just a spoof.
0: What poking fun at modernism?
1: Sure, poking fun at critics and pomposity of you know, literary critics and the emperor's new clothes kind of things. So that was a fun thing to hold, uh, to to look at.
0: Yeah, it's got a nice, interesting two triangles on the cover. Right. It looks almost like it's uh, it's hardcover. All these books were hardcover, were they or not?
1: Almost all, there were a few that came out in both hardcover and paper. Some of them came out in several versions of cloth. It would change color sometimes. One or two he published in India paper with uh, bookcases.
0: Your bibliography would, would indicate that, wouldn't it? Sure. What about anything unique or innovative that he might have come out with, other than just the new content? Does anything come to mind?
1: Well, he was called the first modern publisher by Christopher Morley. I'm not sure exactly what that meant. Maybe because he was such an advocate for new writers. Maybe because he was fearless in facing down the censors. And winning. And winning, yes. But as far as content, the only two kinds of things I can think of. One would be the poetry. He published a great amount of poetry and and that was a marvelous thing to give to the American readers. But he also collected and published some foreign books of poetry, a number of series of of those. He brought good European writers to America. In translation? In translation, Mm -hmm. right.
0: And nicely printed. Did they have a similar look to them?
1: They all did. The poetry, the foreign series, came out. They were much smaller tended to be um, less expensive, harder to find in libraries, too, because uh, I think they held up as well as normal-sized books, but...
0: How many of those do you think they were, roughly? I think he
1: published two or three series, three or four in each. Again, it was the kind of thing, he started out with great fanfare, you know, this is what we're going to do, we're going to publish these great foreign authors, and then after a few, and the sales weren't so great, he just kind of... Moved on. ...let them go,
0: What about designers? We talked about uh, Gaudi. Mm -hmm. Did Gaudi uh, lay out a lot of his books?
1: I think Gaudi worked closely with him. There were probably other people that stopped by that helped him set out some of the the title pages and some of the designs. I don't know that for sure. He had a a
0: hand quite directly in the way the books looked. Oh, yes.
1: He was involved in that very closely. Something he felt strongly about. He wanted them to look good wanted them to to last, did they have jackets? they did many um, almost I think they probably all did, most of them the ones in libraries probably were lost. Uh, I got to see very many of them, and Thomas Tansell uh, in the two thousand and eight uh, volume of the Book Collector noted he had sixty book jackets that i hadn 't mentioned in my bibliography, so they are they are there, they are available.
0: From that era, it is generally just difficult to find books that were produced from, say, 1900 to 1920 in in jacket. That's just difficult
1: all around. The paper maybe was just regular paper or just heavier paper? I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, or the... people just discarded them when, no. they, when they bought the books because they were just okay. seen as protection for the boards. That's one possible explanation. But it, it is obviously useful to know which were produced with jackets and which which weren't Mm. so as you say that book collector issue would be useful to have for the collector obviously
1: very very much let's say the 2008 issue of book collector that's i believe a quarterly uh, g thomas tansell from new york city who's must have a spectacular collection of his own uh, produced a very fine update to the, the book bibliography
0: where if someone wants to see the books. Is there a library that you're aware of that holds them, a collection, good collection of the, them?
1: The two places I know of would be the University of South Carolina. Matthew J. Brockley deposited his collection in the rare book room there.
0: What city is that in? Uh,
1: Columbia, South Carolina. And Vassar College has a very fine collection of uh, Kennerly books also. New York Public Library, of course, has a great many of them since they were published in the city. I think Indiana University Library has some also, the University of Michigan Library, but South Carolina and Vassar would be the two premier locations for those.
0: Anything else you'd like to say about the man, uh, his output, or how you'd like to see uh, history remember him?
1: I think he must have been a fascinating man. I think he must have had some, some real charisma to attract the kind of friends he had and who got angry with him because he didn't pay bills but still were glad to be his friends.
0: Despite it all. Yes, yeah.
1: and he must have, despite the fact that he, he didn't pay his authors, and in fact, uh, Dr. Matthew Bruckley has this marvelous line about how a particular contract, quote, reveals Kennerly's caution or his disinclination to corrupt authors with money. Um, I think that's marvelous. But his championing of the young writers and being able to to tell who who really was going to be a good writer is is pretty remarkable. So he may not have been the best businessman. He may not have been the best critic of fine writing. But he was a remarkable combination of real interest in good writing and uh, getting the books published. Did a great service to American literature, and, and as you say, it's un- it's beyond unfortunate that he's so little known except
0: to book collectors. And uh,
1: I think, you know, the fact that there's a good biography of him will help.
0: That's quite old too, though. It was back in the what '80s, wasn't it? Ah, uh, uh,
1: Bruckley's biography published in 1986. You're right. So that's that's getting on too, and his name his name will turn up. By anyone who's studying some of the other writers, you know, the H.G. Wells and the D.H. Lawrence's, will find Kennerly's name probably in footnotes or, you know, in indexes. But it, it would be nice if people would see that name and say, oh, Kennerly, right. He was involved here too.
0: Thanks very much for doing your part to uh, preserve the memory of Mitchell Kennerly.
1: Well, his books deserve to be remembered. There's no question about that. I'm, I'm glad to be of some service to the, the profession and to book collectors. hope it's of some help.
0: I've been speaking with Dan Boyce, who is the author of the Mitchell Kennerly imprint bibliography published by University of Pittsburgh and a librarian at Divine Word College in Epworth, Iowa. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you.